This call is being recorded. Um, first of all, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to chat with me. Sure, happy to. <clears throat> yeah, you know, I saw your TED Talk and um, how I came about that is through a lot of research and exploring the topic of school shootings and looking to get to the root cause of the issue, you know, and mm -hmm. digging deeper and deeper, I came across <laughs> your work. And what I was hoping to do is just ask you a couple questions to get your perspective and also run a couple things by you just to check my thinking to see if um, mm -hmm. I'm coming from, from this at the right place. And I think you can also provide a lot of key insights too. So Okay. Um, yeah. Do you mind if we <clears throat> kind of fire away with some questions and stuff like that? Yeah, please. I'll, uh -huh. I'll start with like the general premise for where I'm coming from. So, you know, we have these school shootings and it's a terrible tragedy that I believe can be totally avoided. And we have a polarized <laughs> nation right now and, you know, we politicize the issue and I don't hear enough people asking the question, what's the root cause? Like, why is this even happening in the first place? You know? Yeah. Um, and that's where I started to dig and, and started to look. So looked at the existing research that's out there um, that's been done, um, read through the journals and diaries of the kids who, or some of the kids who've done these things. And one thing that I found really interesting is it seems like in every case that I started to look at, we started to see that these kids were dealing with a lot of um, internal issues, mainly a lot of them were suicidal before they turned homicidal you know yeah. and and started to dig into that and realize the second leading cause of death right now in the united states for 10 to 24 year olds is suicide it's like this whole thing that had no idea was that this has been going on in our country mm -hmm. you know it's like this yeah. silent epidemic right um and so I started then saying, okay, well, what's, why, why does suicide happen? Why, what gets us to that point? And just start digging and digging. And that's when, um, you know, the, the ACEs study came, uh -huh. came to light and saw all the different health outcomes that are associated with adverse childhood experience, which you mentioned in your talk, right? And this is now where I'm at is like, okay, so mm -hmm. we, we have, um, and this is the, the first thing that I'd like just to get your thoughts on is as I'm trying to make sense of this myself, it seems like we have these, well, let's call them overwhelming events, um, you know, adverse events. There's different tra traumatic events, different phrases you could use, but let's just say events that, that are, that are received negatively, overwhelming events mm -hmm. happen. Um, then that causes overwhelming emotions, um, as a coping mechanism to try to make sense of this, dysfunctional beliefs are adopted. Um, those dysfunctional beliefs result in dysfunctional <laughs> outcomes. Mm -hmm. How does that sit with you based on everything that you know with your, your 30 plus years of experience? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a, certainly a big part of it. And um, I, I love that you're actually making the connection with suicidal feelings and thoughts because I do, I think that underlying these young people that have committed these, you know, just horrific acts are very <clears throat> troubled, hurting people, yes. not, not crazy people, nope. because I think part of what, you know, people react to with, with such kind of surprise is that, um, 
you know, some of these young people <clears throat> have actually been evaluated by the mental health system and, and not committed. And so it, right. it then seems shocking. Like, how could that be? Because wouldn't you be crazy in some really um, kind of extreme observable way? And I think instead, <clears throat> the way I see it, and I, I let me just first clarify, I'm not an expert in this field, but it's yeah, trying sure. to connect the dots, I think, right. that I, I see these as hurting people who then become brooding about mm. their hurt and their sense of of the lack of fairness in the world, right? Uh -huh. <clears throat> and and that and then becomes this kind of loop of thinking that we know, you know, those those thoughts then recruit, if you will, worse feelings and worse feelings then recruit additional kind of uh, negative dark thinking and and that i think creates that sort of brooding cycle that you see and you see it evident in some of their social media postings some of their writings yeah and and so that then becomes i think the what the right word is the catalyst kind of for mm -hmm. for for eventually for the behavior mm -hmm. so you know i do think i mean our behavior has meaning and so um if you and what we tend to think of too often which i think is a, a often a kind of simplistic and even naive way is that people are simply making choices and they are making a bad decision i don't think that 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 is that kind of purely conscious oh i'm going to decide to go you know shoot people you know that 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 comes out of the blue you know um in the way that you might say oh today i think i'll choose to have a salad for lunch. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about a, a, a process that it does have a decisional component, but I think that it, it, it's the manifestation of this escalating brooding and this intolerable feeling that, that goes with that. Yes, yes, I, I hear you on that. And that lines up well with just intuitively what seems to make sense. And with that framework in mind, what would you say is the starting point? What's what's the root of it? Wow. So um, you know, since you first reached out, I've been trying to think about this, and mm, and my guess you. is that you know it, it certainly could be different with different people because I I think one of our other um, uh, potentially challenging and difficult assumptions is that there is a root, and and very likely I think that there could be different roots for different people, right? That there's um, so I, if I could just take a little tangential moment, because sure. I wanted to try yeah. to think about a little bit more of a foundation as a way of thinking about this first thing versus kind of rushing to a, a specific route. <clears throat> you know, and one of the things that, that um, I was reflecting on is I had the chance several years ago to, and I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember to attribute this appropriately, but it was um, a, a video that was done about um, the um, Columbine shooting, right? And I remember, and it was shown as part of a training for active shooter um, um, in a social service agency where I worked. And I just remember as these young people were walking, you know, making their way through the schools, 
that um, <clears throat> several times um, when they would see their classmates under a table or something and they would stop and even engage in some brief conversation mm -hmm. that you would think, oh, they're, they're, these kids are going to be okay. And then they would just shoot. And, mm -hmm. and I remember thinking, my gosh, you know, if you saw this in a, in a, in a movie um, that was uh, actual footage, because this was taken from the um, school cameras, <clears throat> you would think that was such gratuitous violence that it, it couldn't happen that way. And yet this was real footage. And so it it did really make me think like what yeah what is going on yeah. that these two young people who do not seem criminally insane right. <clears throat> um, are doing this and so that's where I, I mean I think we need to really try to think back and the parallels in in, the, in human development and um, childhood development and where that might have gone like a little off track a lot off track and got them on a different kind of um trajectory and <clears throat> i was thinking about how you know when one of it's very common to see in children um in the ages of like five and six where they can sometimes become really enamored of superheroes right to the point that they sometimes end up getting injured because they'll they'll put a cape on and think they they too can fly mm -hmm. you know and and so it's for some kids it is <clears throat> fun and play and imaginative but there are children for whom it becomes like they lose the boundary of themselves in that right and so, you know, when we un when we understand that in children, because we don't see that as a, um, <clears throat> you know, abnormal kind of development, we we understand it. And it is it at a time when um, the first time for many kids that they're sort of navigating out in the world on their own, um, without their parents, without caregiver, and and you know, it might be in school for the first time or. You know, um, just um, you know, experiencing more peers or whatever, and so we we understand that then as a time of incredible vulnerability, and so that identification with someone who is so powerful um, becomes a really important coping mechanism, right? So they can be the superhero. Um, and, and hopefully they kind of outgrow that and, and in that process they've internalized that sense of, you know, I'm not, I'm not terribly vulnerable, I can cope with whatever comes. And so, you know, it, you see it as kind of a normal, you know, um, developmental challenge and speed bump, but a way that a kid could take some coping and strength external and integrate it internally into them does that make sense yes i'm following so far and, yeah yeah and so then when i think about like i wonder if one way to think about these um these older youth who then become school um shooters is that they too i mean the the way you see them when you can see footage the way they walk the way you know carry themselves the way that that the 
um, that they conduct the, the, these shootings look um, not like a brooding, uh, hurting, scared kid, but it's as if in that moment they have embodied that a sense of this great power, right? Yes. And and so I just wonder about sort of the parallel there of thinking that, um, you know, it can look like it's all about strength and yet still underneath, I think, yes. is this brooding. But um, by the time you're a teenager, um, you know, we expect that you've internalized some of that so that you would have the skills to um, to find the support, you know, you would have internalized some sense of, yeah, I mean, being being an adolescent, you know, being a human being, even it is fraught with its own perils and vulnerabilities, and yet I have this sense of, you know, what I can do and have hopefully some skills to do it, and I just wonder if it's this this second kind of peak of tremendous vulnerability without the um, commiserate skills to manage it, the sense that someone could help you with that. And so I, it just feels to me like there's this parallel of mm -hmm. I'm going to embody this, but, um, and it looks so callous and it looks, um, crazy and yet it's a moment of power over yep. what is really an incredibly overwhelming internal vulnerability that yep. was a long way of saying it so no thank you thank you thank you can, can i sort of recontextualize what i'm hearing absolutely so, so maybe we could look at this as there's some events that take place that um make a person Make a, make a young boy feel disempowered. And mm -hmm. that disempowerment then sets off these negative emotions. Those negative emotions kind of kick off the death spiral, if you will, or the downward dark spiral that we can call it. Mm -hmm. As a mm -hmm. coping mechanism, you start to um, point the finger outward. You know, they're the problem, society's the problem. Um, as a coping mechanism, this sort of gets to the point where it continues to escalate to where um, as a moment of reclaiming this power, you then do something like uh, like a school shooting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I so I think that they're at um, I think there's two ways that can go at that point. I think that probably for some there is this, and I don't know to what degree this is conscious versus kind of subconscious, but you know, a, a trying to feel powerful um, and and assert that. Um, you know, a number of my friends who are in law enforcement do do talk about. Um, you know, suicide by cop, um, meaning that it is fundamentally a suicidal urge and they can't do it directly themselves, but they put themselves in a situation where they are very likely to be shot. Mm -hmm. And so, which ties back to, you know, what I think you were already starting to raise up is that there is this very dark um, suicidal thought and feeling mm -hmm. process underneath. 
Just kind of sitting with that for a second, you know? Yeah. Where my mind turns to is resiliency, which seems like everyone's talking about these days, just like you know, tra trauma-informed, right? Sort of the same thing as, or along the same veins. And I think it's, I'm glad that a lot of people are talking about resiliency. It seems like what you mentioned earlier, not having the skills to handle and deal with the situation or not having the understanding that there's help that one could seek after um, mm -hmm. seems to be where these where the roads lead, right? Whether it's a yeah. disempowering um, thing that happens and then you don't know how to deal with it or some type of overwhelming event or even a trauma um, that might happen to you. I think all those roads lead to the answer being um, in resiliency, I think. Yes, I would agree with you. And I do think the more we know about resiliency, the more hopeful we should be because I don't think that it is, <clears throat> you know, well, let me say it this way. I think, again, like many of these ideas, we had a fairly simplistic, naive thought. And I think that some people thought of resiliency that you just bounce back, right? And I, I don't think that that, I mean, I think that's a surface level because when we look at the impact of trauma, and by trauma, I'm talking broadly, right? Toxic yeah. stress, you know, all kinds of really adverse events, they affect the brain and the physiology. So it's the brain is not like this rubber ball that can just bounce back. We get wired by our experience. And so, and so then it was like, well, it's either all hopeful that you bounce back or that you're now wired and you're damaged. And mm -hmm. I, I do think that the neuroscience shows us again and again the, the plasticity, they call mm -hmm. it, but the capacity of the brain to continue to grow and change. It doesn't mean that that's automatic and certainly the kinds of experiences that might have really helped you know the predominant growth trajectory of the brain might be one thing and now we got to figure out how do we help this brain that was damaged in this body and mind that are related to this brain that were damaged get back on a healthy trajectory mm -hmm. um, but if we could think about that in terms of skill building and specific training and support you know i i think the hope for resiliency is real Yes, yes, absolutely. And it's backed by science, just like you're saying, the mm -hmm. neuroplasticity discovery that we um, now see that, that gives a lot of hope. It is not, not, a, not everyone is aware that this is part of the function of the brain, um, let alone the developmental processes of the brain as a, as a child is going through <laughs> school, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. how, how then um, would we best build in resiliency into the environment that that children are exposed to, right? Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, I, what I'm starting to see is like, you know, I hear when I talk about the, this problem with folks, I hear a lot of people say it, it starts at, starts with the home. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. The challenge is that it's hard for any of us to have too much of, of a say in what goes on in someone's home, right? Um, but right. what we can start to do is um, start to lean on this one place that most kids go to, which is school, 
and mm -hmm. what kind of environment then can we start to facilitate for the kind of resiliency that we need to deal with all kinds of life's trauma and just dealing with the rapidly changing world that we now live in, right? It's like um, there's yeah. some resiliency that's needed just for existing in 2018, it feels like. <laughs> So I think there's a, a couple of really valuable points there that um, one of the other things that, that research also now makes a very compelling case for is that the presence of one supportive, consistent, reliable adult can make the difference in the trajectory of resilience. Now, of course, we hope that that, that one, at least, um, trusting, consistent, reliable adult is a parent. Um, and when it is the parent, I mean, the, the benefits of that are, are very significant. And yet we see over and over again when young people find that through a teacher or a coach or, you know, a bus driver or, you know, someone else in their life that <clears throat> it can really mitigate the damage and provide that sort of platform for the future. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm reminded of a you know, terminology in um, social psychology, and it's the, the notion of um, possible future selves. Mm. And, you know, part of that, I think, with it, so it's hard to do resiliency completely on your own. Uh, maybe it's possible, but um, it's hard. But when you know, we can start to envision a future and ourselves in the future. That That is what begins to turn the tide. Well, if you're in, um, you know, a secure relationship, your parents see that. They see your potential and they're projecting to the future. What we know about trauma and adverse experiences is that because people are so... Um, uh, challenge to cope and survive in the present that you see the sense that the future kind of shrinks or feels untenable unreachable and so that presence again of that supportive person who in often it's through their eyes that you first begin to get a glimpse of your future mm -hmm. and what might be possible that that too that's like the emotional hook for resiliency it's not just a, a by the bootstrap kind of i'm you know going to pull yeah. myself up and do this um but when that becomes eminently more possible when you you are supported by the vision that there is a future and that you're deserving of that and that someone sees your your capacity and your worthiness of that right And so if I could link that back to there's one other piece that I think is really critical in, in, in children's development that I do think schools have a capacity to, to pay better attention to. And that is, you know, we, we know that when kids first start school in the first couple of grades, that typically they have a, a belief that, that kind of anything's possible if they work hard enough for it. And um, somewhere between 9, 10, 11 in that range, 
they they begin to have a different awareness of wait a minute everything's not possible in the same way you know and you know i'm i'm better at some things i'm not so good at other things and this kid over here is better at those things than me but maybe i'm better than and and that's when they begin to have more kind of social awareness that people have different strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and then in healthy development you know um as we then move into kind of um preteen teen years you know, we begin to sort that out. And it doesn't mean that it feels good or that it it is always equals out. But if a person can recognize, you know, I'm not so good at this, but, you know, I'm okay at this. Um, that That is the foundation of a healthier sense of self, right? And, and ultimately then self-esteem. It doesn't mean that, you know, I'm great at everything. Like that's not self-esteem. Real self-esteem is I have a sense of who I am and I can recognize my strengths and I recognize that I have some relative weaknesses. And for those, like I'm learning how I accommodate and compensate for um, and still feel good about myself, right? That's a a more holistic, um, realistic foundation for a sense of self. And I worry that some of these kids that um, end up on this track, you know, have the whatever vulnerabilities they feel, and it may be from a a wide range of different life circumstances, are making the journey through that normal development and don't have a good enough sense of, like, what are my relative strengths? Instead, that sense of not having the right skills, not having the <clears throat> the the social capital is a term that's used now mm-hmm. about how you know how to navigate and how to feel apart and how to how to kind of get my needs met that that as they move through that next phase it's it's what they see are the weaknesses and they see the ways they don't fit on fit in they don't measure up. And then the future is foreclosed. Mm. And you see how that then, I think, creates what you were referencing earlier about that kind of the thoughts Mm -hmm. and the distorted thoughts that that then become, you know, reinforced and and, um, more cemented. I I don't, I'm using that somewhat carefully because I think thoughts can change, right? But, But you see how, events and experiences lead to a a belief about them, beliefs lead to thoughts, thoughts then lead to, you know, how we perceive lots of things. And then that creates this structure that that feels like it's it's pretty um, solidified around around weaknesses, around negativity and the sense that um, it's not fair. Wait a minute. You know, I don't fit in. I can't get my needs met. I'm not. I'm not enough <clears throat> compared to other people. Mm-hmm. And that going into adolescence, I think, is <clears throat> a huge risk factor. And then absent protective factors that might mitigate that, you, it it doesn't seem to me a huge step to think that you get to a place where it's intolerable. Yep. 
And then what role do you see schools playing or different people within a school playing to reframe or refocus a child or a student to see things differently? Yeah. So, wow, this is a whole other area that bears lots of thought, I think. But, you know, I mean, um, I, I think at a fundamental level, a recognition that you know, social and emotional skills are a real important foundation for success. And, you know, I think with there's been such a tremendous push for accountability on schools and, and that manifests then as, you know, standardized testing and, and whatever, that it, the pressure on schools is really away from the the whole person of the student yeah. and way more toward you know these um, the the data and um, and that the schools didn't do that to themselves. I mean, I think we as a country have done that to them. So I, I mm-hmm. want to be careful to frame it that of way. <clears throat> and yet, I, I mean, I think there's now research that begins to show that if you pay attention to social emotional learning from early on that actually is related to better academic outcomes too so mm. i don't think it's the either or right um but i do think it is a it's a shift in focus um and so i think um you know trying to pay attention to that earlier teaching social skills um you know um I, you know, was reminded recently, I, I saw a thing about a um, teacher, and again, I'm sorry, read too much, can always That's remember fine. I read things, yeah, but, yeah. Um, Everyone you know, it. that at the end of the week, you know, I think this is an early elementary school, she would have, um, you know, the students, they would write down, like, who they sat with, and who they had lunch with, and, and what she was looking for early on were those kids that were excluded, or excluded themselves, right? I mean, we don't know exactly. But then thinking about, you know, just how to pair that, those children in projects, or, you know, with a peer on an activity, and just making sure that, that, she was doing what she could so they didn't get left behind socially where you know i think our focus is that we don't want children to be left behind academically uh-huh. but we don't always connect those dots yeah and i don't think so that wouldn't be a huge thing you know i mean i, I don't think we should expect that teachers become therapists but but those are relatively simple interventions that actually also support better classroom management mm-hmm. and academic outcomes. So it's it's more aligned with what I think a teacher's already trying to, to do. Yeah, right. You also have the school counselors, right? And when I start looking into the ratios of counselors to students, mm-hmm. I'm just so surprised at yeah. it's like first of all they're well, so some, busy and then they, well, they have yeah good some schools don't even have them anymore i mean yeah. they were the first line in budget cuts right Oof. and then if you have a school counselor they're often dealing with all the admin discipline stuff issues or admin stuff or just you know lunch duty and bus duty and so I mean, I think you're getting to something which is right that if social emotional 
health is as important as it seems to be, not just in healthy development, but actually in supporting good academic outcomes mm-hmm. and having resources in schools. Um, you know, I've seen schools that, that have had those resources and, you know, they've, they've had, you know, short time limited groups for kids like going whose parents are divorcing or you know a parent who might be incarcerated or you know children who've been exposed to domestic violence i mean all kinds of things and it's not that those little groups can can fix things but i think they go such a long way of helping children feel like i'm not alone yeah you know someone else has had because that that feeling of i'm different you know, right. it's such a painful feeling for kids. Yes. And, um, you know, and but a, a counselor, I mean, there are all these curricula out there. Um, there, there are tons of manuals on teaching basic social skills. Um, so, you know, short-term groups that um, a school counselor or social worker might do around that for children that really are struggling, right? <clears throat> um to make friends, to be a part of a group. Those are, those actually are relatively small, easy things to do if there's a resource of a person to be able to do that. Yeah. Yep. From what you know, do counselors have the, the kind of training or skills, I'm talking about school counselors, do they have the kind of training and skills needed to best serve our students from what you know? I think generally, yes. Um, and I, I think because there, there's been a lot of work in trying to manualize a lot of these kind of groups I'm talking about. Right. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think um, I'm not as worried about the training as I am more about um, are those people still in schools? And if they are, are they able to actually do to use their skill set. Yeah, right. Right. Based on just if they're versus being inundated with like a bunch of non-counselor stuff, right? Is what you're saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I I try to think about what those large levers are. Like if we make these one or two changes, not saying that it solves everything, but that it just starts to put us in the right direction or makes a really large impact. And yeah. It seems like number of counselors in schools is is a biggie. Are there some other large levers that you see? Well, I think that um <clears throat> you know, I'm a, a big proponent of trauma informed schools. Um and I think that um the more we know about trauma and adverse events and toxic stress, the whole that whole category that taking kind of universal precautions about that um, is wise because it's not it's not likely that it's only a few students in your school it's likely that most students right uh, you know go through something and so you know i think that um and there there are lots of different approaches about becoming a trauma-informed school so you know one of the things is looking at um discipline um Right. And, and, uh, you know, teachers need to, to, to be able to, you know, manage their classrooms. And, but when, when kids are um, pulled out for disciplinary action, some schools get in a very um, kind of reactive, punitive stance vis-a-vis that. 
trauma-informed schools still set boundaries. So it's not that anything goes, but it is we are going to, as a group, maybe it's just a couple of us who know this kid, try to hit the pause button and also think, what else is going on here? So instead of just the suspension um, or, you know, whatever, but to try to think what else is going on and, and what else might we do? And so I think that, you know, schools that have done things like, because um, again, if you're struggling to fit in and you're starting to feel like everyone's against you and then you get suspended, yeah. um, that becomes a very confirming experience mm-hmm. of your already beginning to be distorted belief. Yeah. So schools that would do, don't have out-of-school suspension, but have you go instead inside to something where there's someone other than just sitting, you know, looking bored and irritated that you're there, yeah. but spending some individual time, what's going on? Can I help you with this? You know, could we, you know, um, you know, spend a little time, work on a skill. Um, you know, I saw something recently on the internet about a school that, you know, has turned their in-school suspension into a meditation room. And, um, you know, how they're seeing, you know, fights go down. Because, again, teaching skills, some teaching kids some of these very core self-regulatory skills. Because mm-hmm. we assume as kids get older that they have them. But they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I was struck by, I've been a few years early in my career as a school psychologist and would do testing for, you know, kids for special ed. That was our major responsibility. And, you know, it was completely normal that if you looked at psychoeducational testing and you would see that a kid could be really good, say, in math, but maybe um, less good in spelling and maybe really poor in, say, reading comprehension, Mm -hmm. right? That variability across different academic skills was fairly normal. We don't have that same way of thinking, nor do we have good ways of assessing that when we talk about um, social-emotional skills, there's great variability too. Uh-huh. So I might, you know, I might be really good as a kid at doing, you know, maybe being assertive, but I might not be very good at like regulating my own big feelings or, you know, putting my feelings into words. I mean, so we sort of assume with social emotional functioning, oh, if you're this age, then you should, you should have that that capacity that we expect of a typical kid this age. Well, why? I mean, <laughs> those. You're right. I think there's variability there too. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Do you know the name of that school that does the meditation room in school suspension thing? I That's, can't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> it fine. Kind of this this this, uh, <laughs> this source confusion thing is like. Uh, is yeah. very very part of like our information world that we live in today Too but much. i'm sure i'm sure i can just type in <laughs> in school suspension too but what you're you know i start to think about things in, in terms of systems right and you have these different feedback loops or these different um triggers or critical moments and um you know some people call them trip wires this this idea that okay like if it's time for a suspension this is a you've crossed this trip wire where it's like hey we should probably be 
paying more attention to your social and emotional skills that you have and also to what's going on at home, right? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, these are so connected. So that's a, a really, really good one that you bring up because, um, you know, you wouldn't be too, you wouldn't be too surprised to find that if a, a kid is making some kind of a threat to do something terrible at school, that they have issues going on at home slash um, some challenges with their own ability to um, handle their own emotional regulation in the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good point, but then you need people to do that. Right. <laughs> you need, you need folks who are um, available and trained to handle this, which um, seems like goes back to the idea of more counselors in schools to be able to do things like this, which yeah, we can then well, zoom. Back that. Yeah. yeah. So let me, when, one source I can actually remember <laughs> um, is, I don't know if you ever saw the documentary called paper tiger. I just, was, I just got it. I talked with the folks. Um, oh my that, God. Produce it, yeah. so I haven't watched it yet for the, the, the walla walla. Uh, yep, yep. Yeah. So, you know, there, it was a principal who went to a meeting, he heard it and I, I, maybe a gym teacher who also did like the disciplinary stuff they started really small just just two people and they started with just a a handful of the kids who were the most challenging and you know it it is really heartwarming to see the the difference that it made and um first of all just their intention and their efforts um, mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I think sometimes, you know, we, we get in our own way because we, and schools in particular, and, and I think a lot of big social service kind of systems think, well, wait, you know, cause, cause frankly, given all the accountability and all the other stuff, we have disempowered a lot of professionals. So they're going to wait till, you know, there's a policy and a school director directive and a, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that takes us out of our own humanity. Yeah. Right. And so maybe you, we can't, maybe you're not going to do this all because as a whole school, all at one time. Right. But, you know, it's like, do we miss those, those opportunities of just some human connection? Mm-hmm. And I think you're painting this picture that I'm seeing, which is, dispelling the myths of school shootings of suicide like it it can be really easy to to sort of make a a broad brush stroke and say oh anyone who's committing suicide anyone who's doing a school shooting has um some problems with their brain they're you know clinically insane and should be committed right that's like an easy way to deal with the yeah. problem and kind of just <clears throat> move on and make sense of the world but this just not this is not true i think dispelling the myths about these things um, ex- exposing what's what's going on um, dispelling the myths and then um, showing solutions that are working, like um, paper tigers, for example, maybe one mm-hmm. of those examples. Do you th- what do you think the impact would be if more principals and faculty members saw that movie? Um, I mean, I I think that it will touch many of them. Um, you know, I mean the school in Walla Walla was also very small. So, yeah. you know, and a lot of our schools are huge. And oh, so I can totally. imagine, 
you know, people, uh, administrators being like, wait, wait, there's no way. But mm-hmm. I think the, and, but then I think you missed the message. And the message is they didn't even do it the whole school. Two of them, two on the faculty started together with a couple of youth. That is what I think the message should be. Mm. That, that we don't have to, if we go from nothing to like this idea that you have to do everything universally, all consistent. Well, you know, in complex systems like schools, I don't even think that's possible. Yeah. So, um, but then if, if we hold out and think that's the only way, then do we let ourselves off the hook that, that we might actually be able to do something? Yes. Small? Yes, yes. And these small, small things make huge impacts in the lives of these kids, you know? Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you turned around a couple of kids, right, who were the the ones, the most, quote, notorious in your school, you know, that then gets the attention of other people who then begin to wonder, wow, what was that, right? And that's how, that's how innovation and ideas spread it's not from a universal one-size-fits-all it's that you find somebody who's a champion and and you know in the implementation science world it's called an early adopter and you let their passion and their success become part of the fuel for other mm-hmm. people and then you pull a few more people in and and there will probably be people you never pull in, but but that's okay. I don't think it has to be everybody. If we got a critical mass of people in all schools who were willing to not just do it by themselves, but to pair with a colleague and and really be curious about what else are we missing here? What's going on? You know, what would it take? And to extend themselves just a little bit and see what that got. You know, that's how I think we would make a difference in kids' lives. And actually, I think it would, it would, um, it's like refuel <laughs> and some of the, the teachers and administrators yeah. who have got to feel pretty helpless and hopeless in the current situation. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That makes so much sense. What do you think about uh, the community resiliency model? Um, I don't know a whole lot about it, but the, what I do know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I, I don't think, I mean, well, let me say, I do think it's, it's certainly possible, as I alluded to before, that people can, because people do bootstrap their way up out of impossible circumstances. Mm-hmm. But the more, I mean, we are social beings, yes. and I think the more we are connected, yeah. and the more, um, you know, people feel that sense of um, connection to and responsibility for, and I mean it in a in a bi-directional way. I mean, I, I think those create healthier communities, and then people thrive. Yeah. Yeah. What else do you think is important to know about the subject? Hmm. So I w- if you're not familiar, I-, I would point you toward the work of um, uh, uh, Dr. Guy Diamond. 
he and I'm again terribly blocking the name of his the okay. model, but but you could Google him and he um, has has developed a model where, that he's been testing um, in um, I think in Pennsylvania, um, and it it it's around su uh, teens who were suicidal, and it's an attachment based model, and so it it fundamentally is looking at you know, if if a young person is struggling, and actually any person, but he's focused on on teens, I think. You know, if you're mm -hmm. feeling suicidal, and if you feel that you can turn towards someone, the likelihood of you actually um, committing suicide goes down. Mm -hmm. If you feel, if you have the feeling, and yet you feel that you either there is no one or you can't turn toward. Um, then the the risk of suicide goes way up and he's been working with kids who have been hospitalized so i mean the suicidal threat was pretty significant uh -huh. but i think it is this notion of of turning toward versus not being able to turn toward that i think is also fundamental in in what you're trying to piece together right and what i like about it is that you know again it kind of circles back to it's the family well okay clearly if if there's if the parent is not engaged in and just dismissing the kid then there's no one to turn toward but what if earlier experiences shape how the kid thinks and the parent now might actually be more able to and yet the kid doesn't believe uh -huh. Again, it goes back to the distorted thoughts, yes, right? Yes. That that either the parent won't be able to, or that like like I don't know how to, or I can't. I don't. There's something in the the kid's ability to turn, um, and that's where I think that little nugget is something that probably gets missed a lot because I mean, again, you look at some of these families of kids who've been school shooters and. I, I we can't know because we didn't really live there. But from from what is known, there isn't something always that's so apparent uh, that indicating that the parent wasn't able to function, right? Right, or wouldn't have helped if they knew. Uh, I'm, I mean, I, I do. There are a couple of cases I can remember where I think parents have been in complete denial about some things that they should have mm -hmm. done. Um, but I'm talking about where I think the parent is really caught off guard. So something had something's in that kid about not thinking that they can, or not knowing how to, or not somehow not believing that they could turn to. But um, you know. To what degree is that a distorted thought versus a reality? Right, right. That's a really good one. What sort of conclusions did he come to with all that? Um, well, so he's doing an attachment-based intervention, which is is trying to kind of unearth in the attachment literature, we call this an internal working model, which which are those core beliefs about about self, about other, and about the world. And um, people, kids in particular, who've developed kind of insecure working models, get stuck in beliefs that other people won't, can't help. Um, 
and beliefs about the self that either I can't or I'm unworthy or I'm so damaged, you know, and the beliefs about the world being, you know, unpredictable and dangerous and chaotic. And so these attachment-based interventions try to, to, to raise up what are those, you know, deeply rooted, often kind of unconscious beliefs mm-hmm. and, and then really work on um, helping the parents understand those, have empathy for it, and great, develop greater sensitivity so that the parent is making some overtures explicitly to the child to encourage them to turn toward them when they really need to. Mm-hmm. Wow. It, it's really, really nice to know that there's people out there who are doing such great work, yourself included. Oh, well, thank you. I think it's it's an exciting time. I think we know a lot more. Um, and, of course, we can, the more we know, hopefully the better we can do. <laughs> yes. Right. Exactly. I mean, belief governs behavior, right? And when, we, mm-hmm. uh, when we're able to have our beliefs rooted in truth, then all the better behavior. And so I think um, one thing that this conversation has started to inspire me to do is to put together um, almost like a like a myth buster sort of um, debunking the myths of, um, of school shootings and having that be data driven and research driven as best as we can. And what I'd like to do is put something like that together and then um, pass that to a few folks like yourself who um, have the kind of experience that you do to give me your thoughts on, yes, this makes sense. You know, make some adjustments here and there. Um, and then start to get this circulated out because um, when we start to have our beliefs checked with reality and we can kind of illuminate some of these truths, then I think that's one of the pieces in the whole puzzle of more people coming up with better solutions because they start looking at the problem in a different way, right? And then that starts yeah. to unlock the kind of capacity that we need where maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not uh, any of us who has. Um, the working solutions for a particular school, but someone who's at the school uh, may have some ideas, but those ideas can be shaped by um, a better understanding of the problem in the first place, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I would add, I, I think that the work that you're doing is also really important because I think sometimes, um, I don't even know what your background is, but um it sounds like you you know you're trying to make things accessible, and one of that's often the biggest challenge that um researchers and practitioners have is you know they're in their laboratories or they're in their respective you know um places but aren't really thinking about like how how do we translate this how do we make this accessible to reach more people um who might not read a book, you know, on this topic or go to a training, but who definitely um, are frontline people um, who come in contact with youth that are at risk of this and, you know, give them something that is meaningful mm-hmm. to help them. Yes, 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 yes. And I, I see you doing that too. I mean, just your, your TED talk was such a testament to that, right? I mean, you have, 
over 100,000 people who have seen this and it's changed their perspective. It certainly has mine. When I first saw your talk, I was, it, it was a nice breath of fresh air, to be frank. It was like, oh my gosh, okay, great. Now we're getting some, some real clear ways of understanding these deeper problems. So, um, oh, good. Yeah, thank, thank yeah. you for everything you're doing, Vicky. It's really, it's really, <laughs> really good work. I mean, this is, I believe in a world that works for everyone. You know, I, I believe that uh, when we all start to um, pay more attention to the common good, um, mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that, you know, all, all boats rise as the tide rises too. Yeah, you know? yeah, me too. <laughs> so we're, I, I call it uh, us being on team human. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. <laughs> we need our world needs that right now. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think uh, some of us have been um, observers, um, passive observers, for long enough to realize, okay, like we we're all responsible for you know, meaning we have the ability to respond to to what we see, and now it's time to do something. So, yeah. I think more people are doing that. So, um, here's to a brighter future, huh? Absolutely. I like it. <laughs> well, good. Well, such a pleasure to, to get to, to talk with you. And yeah. uh, I, good luck with what you're doing. I think it's a very worthwhile project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, let's stay in touch if you don't mind. Absolutely. Love to. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Good. What I'll do is when I uh, put something together on this uh, uh, myths debunked uh, concept, you know, I'm kind of picturing it being like a one pager type deal. I'll mm -hmm. shoot that over to you, and I'd like to get your feedback on that if you don't mind. Sure, that'd be awesome. great. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll keep right. in touch. Um, I, I won't be a stranger, and um, you don't either. When I publish the podcast here, which is just this conversation, um, I'll send you a link so you can see it. Okay, terrific. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, All right, I look forward to talking to you again. <laughs> sounds good. I'm giving you a big hug from over here in Dallas, Texas. All right. Very good. One coming back after. <laughs> Take care. Thank and you. Happy so Thanksgiving. Uh -huh. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Vicki. Uh -huh. Sure. Bye. Bye-bye.